the scriptures. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18 and follow along with me as I read verses 1 through 15. Then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth tree of Mamre as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought. Wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts and that you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to, come to your servant. They said, Do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf, gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and calf, which he had prepared, and set it before them. And he said, and he stood by them under the trees as they ate. Then they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, Here in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age. And Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. The word of the Lord. As is our custom, uh, let us uh, go before the throne of grace to uh, pray for the many needs of the church. Uh, uh, not only the church locally, but the church universally that uh, God would uh, be near to us and uh, preserve and protect us for his kingdom's sake and uh, draw us as always nearer uh, to himself. So let us pray. Uh, Lord, we uh, pray for the needs of this assembly. We know there are many. Uh, we know that there are many that are unspoken. And uh, they oftentimes uh, reference those matters of which we are in entirely unable to affect. And so we come to the throne of grace, for thou art always able. And we appeal to thee to work and to act and to be gracious, particularly upon those whom we love, who know not the only Redeemer of God's elect. Uh, we pray for the church universally uh, because of our great Redeemer. Uh, we can pray and we must pray that uh, not only here but everywhere, 
thou wouldst purify the church, thy people, for thy namesake. And we pray for our personal virtue as testimony of God's grace in our lives. Personal virtue to be courageous and steadfast. That we would hold fast that which is good. That we would not render evil for evil. Uh, that we would support our shut-ins in prayer and in visitation. And we know, Lord, that there are some of uh, our number who are attending uh, to their infirm parents. Bless them. We know that they cannot be with us today, but they give uh, good, good and virtuous service and love for their uh, parents. Uh, grant that uh, thou wouldst care and provide for them. Uh, we know that it is uh, perhaps a difficult service to render as we watch uh, the life of our loved ones uh, ebb away. But remind us evermore of the promises that we uh, who know the Savior Live now, and we shall live forever. And may we comfort our loved ones accordingly. And we pray for safe travels uh, for those uh, who are uh, closing out uh, the summer season with uh, holiday times. Uh, grant them safety. If they are absent from our presence on Sundays, may they deeply and profoundly miss the gathering of the saints, but wherever they are, that they might be one with us as the sons of God. Remember, Lord, our works in Uganda and the Congo. Uh, bless the preaching of the gospel. Bless the training of men and women uh, to establish the truth of the Reformed faith. And may great fruitfulness be the result of our labors there indirectly, but also the directness of our prayers that thou wouldst work. We ask, Lord, in thy good providence that the wicked civil governors of distant lands would soon slip. And we remember the great promise to our servant Moses who said, in due time, their foot will slip. Lord, the time is ripe. May their feet slip. And may they fall. And may all behold the wonders of the greatness of God. And in this land, in this city, but in every land and city, may civil governors fear the Lord and govern appropriately. And we pray, Lord, for peace. Uh, when there's violent warfare in distant lands, uh, protect the church. Uh, we ask for this evil day that thou wouldst purify again thy people, uh, that we might render good testimony that there is one God in heaven and one Son, Jesus Christ, and one great Spirit bearing testimony to the holiness of God and the provision for sin and guilt in the cross. And for this time, Lord, our time, in this moment of time, prosper the word in our hearts that we might live righteously for thy glory and thy kingdom's sake forever and ever. Amen. Thy will be done. Hear our prayers. Uh, giving attention to uh, Genesis chapter 18, the first 15 verses. Uh, I come away from this text probably... 
uh, in a certain measure as you do with a uh, sense of amazement and wonderment. Uh, it's important to understand that those two words really are couched uh, in a sense of circumstances and outcome, namely when things are impossible. And yet the impossible happens, we're amazed. And we are struck with a sense of wonderment. Um, many of us in uh, this congregation encounter things like that. Um, we are unable to change the hearts and minds of those whom we dearly love. Uh, we are at that stage in life where we reckon that only God can. Uh, and certainly we should have in a sense of wonderment and amazement that God is able to do all things. It's a good reminder that the natural man only has this world. But in and of itself, the beauty and a measure of this world are causes of amazement and wonderment. If you've ever stood, for example, before the Grand Canyon, I mean, you have to be amazed. Uh, if you've ever stood in beautiful places like Glacier National Park, I mean, who can but behold the beauty and not think of a beautiful creator? We should be amazed. But the sons of faith should prize the works of God all the more for what He has done in our hearts, what He will do in life now and forever. Well, in our text this morning, the Lord appears and announces the timely fulfillment of the promise. It's very interesting, we've been studying the promise of God since essentially chapter 12, and as decades have passed, it seems all the more impossible that the Lord can do what He's promised to do to Abraham and to Sarah. But now He comes and announces the timing, verses 1-8. to as you might expect, Sarah's incredulous. It's also, verses 9 to 15, rebuked by the Lord. Because she is going to learn, as all of us know and must learn, that God is able to do the impossible. So there's a measure of wonderment in the Lord's coming, verses uh, 1 to 8. Um, the Lord shows up. It's very interesting in our own lives as Christians, uh, we have an intensity of that fulfillment because uh, our Savior promises to be with us always. I understand fully that there are times where seemingly it's much more intense than others. Uh, we define that more often than not as revival, but nonetheless, uh, God shows up uh, before Abraham. And he appears, interestingly enough, at a place of worship by the Oaks of Mamre. We know it's a place of worship because chapter 13, Abraham built an altar there and worshiped the Lord. He claims it for the Lord. Uh, the technical term of uh, the Savior or God showing up is theophany. There are two angels with him. Now, obviously, all three are incarnate. We know that Abraham knows that one is deity because he bows down and worships. Um, and Abraham knew enough theology to be amazed that the Lord would come again to him, so he bows in worship. And in all of the scriptures, only God is worshipped. 
In every case in the scripture where men bow before angels to worship them, they are corrected gently. Only the Lord is worthy of worship. One of the reasons that we know that this is a measure of uh, the incarnate Savior are in the actions of Abraham. He bows to worship him. Uh, it's very interesting that there's a sense of amazement here, is there not? Because Abraham has been changed from an idolater to a worshiper of God. Who is able to effect such change? The Lord is able. Uh, in response to their presence, he, wa- he washes their feet. He prepares a lavish meal for them for fellowship, befitting an honored guest. I'm reminded of this encounter that it is costly to serve the Lord. Uh, It's a fitting response. Uh, It's interesting to watch Abraham in his response. The text reads, he hurried. He ran. He takes the best. Uh, In a measure, it teaches that how to respond uh, to the greatness of God. Uh, I know what sometimes in life we get a little slow. Uh, Perhaps we're always running late. Uh, Perhaps we um, have a way of choosing the second best to give to the Lord. I mean, I don't know. We all are in a measure guilty of that. But uh, at this point, Abraham and his actions uh, is a measure of a teacher to us. Uh, in grace, he knows who is before him. And he also knows something of the incarnation that we learn about in its fullness, uh, say, for example, in uh, John chapter 1. Uh, the circumstances have been growing in intensity, have they not? Abraham has been promised a son, he's childless. He has promises, but he has no fulfillment as of yet. But he still celebrates the presence of the Lord. All of us in this room encounter difficulties. If you are a young child, uh, you will, if you have not already. But Abraham knows enough about the presence of the Lord to celebrate that presence and fellowship. Uh, There is a very intense time of fellowship uh, that we have with our Lord in the day and time in which we partake of the sacrament of the Lord's table. Because in a measure, there is an intensity of the presence of the Lord. He is always with us, but sometimes He intensifies that presence. And we should come, we should run, we should prepare, and we should give him the best of our time in worship because he alone is worthy. Uh, He also stands by ready, verse 8, to fulfill any request that they might have. Always ready. Uh, Good good testimony to each of us. Always ready. Uh, there's a Hebrew word that you find uh, oftentimes in the Old Testament, Hineni. Uh, God comes and uh, the servant proclaims Hineni, simply, behold, 
Here I am, Lord. I'm ready to do your bidding. Behold me. Uh, well, in verses 9 to 15, there is wonderment in the promise as the Lord announces grace and good news. Uh, the three incarnate men ask for Sarah because she is a part of the covenantal promise. Uh, it's very interesting to uh, remind ourselves that uh, the ancient Near East and certainly uh, there are places in the world today where women are second-class citizens. Sarah is an agent of the promise. She is highly esteemed. Uh, in all of the scriptures, women are esteemed because of the value that they bring. And here, uh, Sarah has value in the eyes of the Lord. And she's also listening to the conversation and the Lord speaks, I will surely return. In the Hebrew text, um, the word return is used twice. One is an infinitive, and then is a verb denoting intensity. Uh, we don't translate it that literally. We simply say uh, that the Lord is saying, I will, I will not just return, I will surely return. And the remarkable element to me is specificity and certainty. Next year, he says, Sarah will have a son. I remind you of that today because uh, many people, uh, men and women, uh, proclaim to be prophets of the Lord. Uh, they cannot speak with such specificity, can they? They cannot speak with such certainty, nor do they speak from power. The incarnate Lord is speaking from all three. Specific time, specific return, specific promise. Sarah is going to have a son. The promises are true. How can it be? It's impossible. The circumstances of her age, as well as Abraham's age, uh, are defining for us the wonderment and amazement as to what's going to happen. The circumstances shape the miracle fulfillment. Uh, both Abraham and Sarah are not just old. They're really old. She is unable physically to have children. Uh, verse 11, literally, it has ceased to be with her after the manner of women. It's not that she will not, she cannot. Uh, so that biological certainty confronts the promise. Who's going to win? The promise of God? Or her biology? It's framing the amazement of what's going to happen. Paul alludes to this text, as you know, in Romans chapter 4, verse 19, with the phrase, the deadness of Sarah's womb. And yet God is able to make alive that which is dead. It's the entire point of the promise. It's framing in a measure our own redemption. We were dead. God made us alive. Uh, on occasion, I remind you, we owe our faith to the power of God because dead men cannot believe. 
And uh, Sarah responds accordingly. She's incredulous, verse 12. Um, she laughs internally to herself. She has enough decorum not to laugh at the Lord, so she laughs internally. She simply cannot restrain herself. She's not the only one, though. Uh, verse 17 of the previous chapter, Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, will a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? And will Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? So he laughs. Uh, I suspect you've never laughed at the Lord. But I suspect you've said something like me, well, it's, it's impossible. The time has come and gone. I don't know what it might be in your life. Perhaps it's a spouse. You've prayed and prayed, and on occasion you witness, and you've just simply said, oh, it'll never be. Or maybe you uh, say of a child that you profoundly love, the time has come and gone, and you just simply say, well, I guess the Lord has given up. I mean, I don't know. Maybe the Lord has. I, I don't have a clue. These things are in the hands of the great God of heaven. But one thing this text is teaching us, God can do the impossible, and that God is able when we are totally unable, and when our strength and length of prayers has run its course, God can still run. Because it does not depend upon the man who wills or the man who runs, but God who is able. Now Moses demonstrates the majesty of the Lord. He asks Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Well, think about it. How did he know? How did the Lord know that Sarah laughed? Well, he knows because he's the Lord. God knows everything. In one eternal moment, before Sarah was even born, he knew that she would laugh. He knows even our thoughts. By the way, that's a purifying event. should be in our lives. I prayed in my pastoral prayer for the purity of the church, the purity of our church. The purity for the men and women in our church. Why do I pray for such things? Because the Lord knows our hearts. He knows what we set our eyes to. He knows that we live in a profoundly evil, wicked age with pornography seemingly everywhere. Turn away from it. The Lord knows what you set your eyes to. Be careful what you set your eyes to. Because He knows our thoughts even before we think them. David says, even before there was a word on my tongue, you know it all. Psalm 139, verse 5. Including the biological circumstances of Sarah. Theological term is, term is omniscience. He knows all things. Actual and possible. David says this knowledge is too wonderful to him. It should be to us. It caused David to have a sense of amazement and wonderment at the majesty of God who knows what he's going to speak even before he speaks it. Okay, so God knows. Can he intervene? That's really the crux of the question, isn't it? Oh, God knows. Can he do anything about it? Most of the American church says, well, he knows, but he cannot really intervene. We have to permit him to intervene. We have to give him permission to intervene. See, ancient 
theological question of the foreknowledge of God encountering the decrees of God from eternity past. I don't really have time for much of this, but I would simply tell you that if God needs your permission to do anything, He may may not very well be the God of the Scriptures. Uh, The answer is uh, definitive. Look at verse 14 in your text. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? So think about it. Can He save your spouse? Your child? Your grandchild? Your recalcitrant parents? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Literally, uh, literally the text is, is anything too wonderful for Him to accomplish? It's a very beautiful way for saying it to me. The beauty of God, who can show up at any time He wills, who can act, who can give, who can provide, who can answer a prayer. I don't know that He will work in many of my prayers, but one thing I know from this text for sure, He is able to work because of who He is. It's a rhetorical question. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament here couches or frames it in the language of inability. Is God able? We know the answer, do we not? Uh, the reality is that the Lord can do anything but violate His nature. So that now, omniscience is coupled with omnipotence. The grandeur of God. That we worship. A couple of illustrations. Uh, you have your Old Testament. I trust you do. Turn to uh, uh, 2 Kings um, chapter 4. Uh, certainly a distant echo of, of uh, Genesis uh, chapter 18. I've got to read verses. 14 to 17. Um, Shunammite, context, uh, is childless. So he said, what thing can be done for her? And Gehazi answered, truly she has no son and her husband is old. Wow. (laughs) I love the phrase, her husband is old. And he said, we'll call her. And when he called her, as she stood in the doorway, then he said, at this season next year, ring a bell? An echo of Genesis 18. At this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. Verse 17. The woman conceived and bore a son at that season the next year, as Elisha had said to her. So God is able to do what? Men and women are unable to do. Uh, I'd be very careful with the application here. I, on occasion, encounter a husband and wives that are trying to have children and a son or a daughter never come. I can't give them a specific hope other than the fact that the Lord does what is right and good for his sons and daughters. I know sometimes events are very, very heartbreaking Uh, But I also know uh, that God is able to cure the heart. 
and God is able to fix. And that God is always good to his sons and daughters uh, because the scriptures so declare it. Uh, But the greater reality is that God is able to do what we are unable to do. Well, it gets worse for this old lady and old man. Verse 20, the son dies. Now that's difficult to swallow for this godly woman. Look at verse 36 and 37. The prophet says, call the Shunammite. So he called her, and when she came to him, he said, take up your son. Then she went in and fell at his feet, bowed herself to the ground, and took up her son and went out. She couldn't have a son. She has a son. The son dies. God resurrects him. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 17. Behold, the Lord has made the heavens and the earth by thy great power and by thine outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for thee. So I don't know if the Lord's going to answer your specific prayers or not regarding a spouse, uh, regarding a son or a daughter or a grandchild. Uh, But I know who God is and that He is able. We're to walk by faith and trust. Uh, be faithful before Him. And God is able to affect His promises. The astonishment of His ability. It's really framed from Genesis chapter 1. Not, uh, while not specifically in the text, the theology is God creates ex nihilo out of nothing. He speaks and things happen. Behold, take up your son. Um, We have a measure of this. Um, Isaiah chapter 9. For a child will be born and a son will be given to us and the government will rest upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There shall be no end to the increase of his government or peace or the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. It's no wonder we pray, Lord, come quickly, for the day is evil. So Sarah's going to learn... In a very profound way that God is able to affect his promise. The wonderment in our spiritual lives, of course, is uh, centered upon Christ. Here again is true wonderment. Uh, First, the Lord comes. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 1. So there is a, a priest and uh, his wife's uh, name's Elizabeth, and they're very old. Echo, Genesis 15. 
And they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. Have we read that before? Yeah, we have. Verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. Elizabeth has a son. His name is John the Baptist. And then the angel goes to a virgin and says, you will have a son. And she says, uh, Lord, let me give you a lesson in biology. I, I, I don't have a husband. Uh, I, I can't have a son. She has a son. His name is Jesus. Uh, the greater miracle, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Notice the definiteness of that, the certainty of it. Well, he'll save some, then he'll lose a few of them. Uh, he'll try real hard to save others, and I don't know, it depends on them. No, definite certainty. Think of the definiteness and certainty of the promise of the incarnate Savior to Sarah. This time, next year, you will have a son. Jesus will save his people from their sins. Who? He. Because he is able. It's wonderment. I'm always amazed at those who have a competing theology to the Reformed faith. Well, God does his part and I do mine. I hope it works out. No, God doesn't deal in uncertainty like that. He saves by his power. Uh, we know that, uh, secondly, he saves by the Spirit in the new birth. Uh, not based on blood, or the will of the man, or the will of the flesh, but upon God. Wait a minute. That can't be. Don't I have to give him permission? Don't I have to let him work? No, it doesn't depend upon the will of man. It depends upon our will. We'd have never come to faith because our will was contrary to his. It's the majesty of our Savior. I love the text in Romans chapter 9. So that it does not depend upon the man who wills or the man who runs, but upon God who has mercy. Think of that when you pray for your son or your daughter or your parents or maybe a spouse. I don't know. I can't speak with certainty because I'm not a prophet. But Jesus does. Our hope breaks upon him. He knows what he's doing. He is able. It's difficult sometimes to love circumstances like that, but we brace the great God of love. Titus uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 5, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, He raises up by His power a people for Himself. Uh, John chapter 20, verse 22, Jesus comes to the apostolic company uh, Peace be to you. And after he said this, he breathed upon them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. 
And we know that's an allusion to Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 9. And the vision of the valley of dry bones. How can these dry bones live? It's impossible, is it not, for dry bones to live? And then the dry bones come together and form a new nation. Uh, by alluding to that text, uh, John is telling us that we are the greater fulfillment of the vision of the valley of dry bones. We are that people who are run to do His will and to affect His glory by His gracious mercies. Now we have power and a measure of enablement to fulfill the mandate uh, the first Israel failed in by the transformation of our spiritual lives in the power of God. A great reminder that God is able. We're legally justified and in the process of time morally changed as evidence of His presence in our lives. Fourth, barring His coming, we're going to die. But we have the promise, do we not? Everywhere in Scripture, I happen to be very fond of the 23rd Psalm. David says, as he closes out the Psalm, I will live in the house of the Lord forever. Now we know it uh, upon the death of the saints, for all who know the Savior, that our souls are immediately delivered and resurrected to heavenly glory. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I know everyone in this room has profound love for their parents. If they know the Lord, when they leave us, and we must say goodbye, as there are times, barring His coming, we will. Uh, they will leave and be present with the Lord. And if they were ever offered, they would never come back. Why would they? Because they're in the presence of the Lord of glory. To be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. I would remind you, by grace, we've been brought back. The natural man has none of this. His life is like a vapor, present but passing away, breaking up. A flower that blossoms, it will soon turn brown in the August heat of the Oklahoma sun. Beauty, but for a moment, then given up. His life is lived like one who goes to the county fair, who goes to the midway where there's fun rides and fun stuff to eat. Momentary and fleeting joy and pleasures. But the fair always leaves, doesn't it? And he's left with little or nothing. I'm reminded of this every time I went to visit my mother. Full-time nursing. In a measure, a beautiful, godly woman, great stature. Everything was taken from her. Because of the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, I understood the theology. 
It's what death does. And the wages of sin are death. Even Christians confront that. The natural man has nothing but fleeting momentary joy. And then it's gone. Uh, when they carried my mother out, I was, I rejoiced. I told her often, Okay to leave, Mom. And you would never return. Because to be absent from the body is to be present. The majesty of Jesus Christ. Fifthly, our Lord will come again and resurrect our decayed bodies. And our souls will put on the imperishable. And the immortal, absent, all the vagaries of the curse. Lord, come quickly to be sure. Paul's great words in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 should never lose their hold upon us in wonderment and amazement. What are those words? And we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Isaiah 51, verse 11, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. It's a bit difficult, I think, to fathom the reality of all that this means. But think about it in this terms. The prophets speak with certainty because the Lord is able and we will never again be fearful, anxious, sick, or die, weep in distress, or suffer, or want or lack of any good thing because of the Lord of glory. Conversely, everlasting and Joy and gladness will be ours forever. And we will celebrate perpetually in the presence of the Lord. And the beauty of the new Garden of Eden will stagger us in wonderment. Remember a number of years ago, um, I'm always somewhat hesitant to uh, mention uh, movies because uh, oftentimes, uh, we shouldn't really go to them, but I, I watched a historic movie uh, entitled uh, The Woman in Gold. It's about a painting of a woman uh, that to me was just incredibly beautiful. I mean, every aspect of the painting just had me captured and enraptured. Uh, it was owned by a Jewish family. When the Nazis uh, came, they took the, uh, they took the painting. It's about the historic uh venue in which uh, the rightful owners had to sue to regain what was theirs all along. Because her family was the rightful owner of that painting. And eventually, uh, civil governors gave it back to the lady because they knew they had no rightful ownership to it. It's now in a museum in New York City. I had to go see it. I was uh, a couple years ago, I was in uh, New York City. Um, I said, darling, we've got to go to that museum. I've got to see the woman in gold. There she was, all over. I mean, it's just an astoundingly beautiful painting. Um, I don't know that the woman itself was so beautiful, but there's just something about it that captured uh, my visual pleasure. And uh, it's not the best of museums, but that's where all the men and women were crowded around looking at the woman in gold. 
But that's chump change. The beauty of the Lord. The beauty of we shall be changed. You don't know the Savior. All the beauty of this world uh, should remind you that there is something greater. That the Lord is able. Uh, The woman in gold really is chump change, is she not? Um, Because we get beauty forever, world without end. Not only that, immutable. Never ever to change again. Never ever to be taken from us. Only the sons of God have such promises and certainty. And we should never lose a sense of amazement of what the Lord has done in changing our hearts and what the Lord will do in changing us forever. Uh, Because God is able. And He is the only great, true change agent who can fix dead hearts who can cause us to be transfixed upon the beauty of the Savior, to come to Him, to fall before Him and bow in worship, and to hold fast each and every day of this wicked world, to ask Him to come quickly and to change us forever.